Hi everyone, I'm Lottie Bowser and you're listening to Lemonade, the podcast that amplifies extraordinary stories of adversity, courage and resilience so that you too can be reminded of your power. Every fortnight, a guest reveals the defining moments that have shaped their lives and the insights and tools they have learned that have helped them to thrive in the wake of their challenges. Season one is packed with incredible people, from activists to comedians, athletes and authors. Don't forget to hit the follow button to be the first to know about every new episode and leave us a review if you like what you hear. Firstly, I just have to say, you are such a lovely silver lining for me. Isn't that a weird thing? Isn't that such a weird thing that there are these silver linings? Like when you you go through something so traumatic and on paper, it's just all utterly fucking bleak. But there are, there are those silver linings. And one of them, especially if you are in, say, the cancer community, the grieving community, the widow, you know, all these groups that you would never wish on your enemy to be part of. And yet we've been in all of those different communities and there is such, it's such a saving grace in such a dark time. And I think those kind of connections really do mean so much because I don't know, in, in the case of, say, us, for example, of losing our person, you know, to cancer, which is also unfortunately so common, but at the same time, often seen as something that maybe older people get. And when you, you lose that person when, they're, when they and you are young, it's very isolating. So I think to have these connections that you find in the, the most random of places is, is so, so important. Mm, it's really special. I've made some beautiful connections in the wake of my late partner's death. And it's, it's a weird one because I wanted to say, like, you know, I'm really excited to talk to you today, but obviously the circumstances yeah. surrounding how we met and why we met online um, are just fucked. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I suppose when you're kind of uh, down the line a bit, you kind of just have to accept that, don't you? Of like, well, the good things that have come in my life because of a really bad thing, like, I don't know, you've got to take, take what you can get out of the shit hand you've been dealt. Like your, like your podcast title says, Lottie, like making lemonade from lemons. Like what it's, it's one of those glib phrases, isn't it? But it's so fucking true of like, well, if you are in a situation where you, you haven't bought this on yourself, you have been dealt this hand, what else are you going to do? I mean, there's a really stark choice, isn't there? Very often. And, and that can be, um, minute down, down to the day to day of like, getting out of bed and washing your face and brushing your teeth when you really don't want to because things are so dark for you. There's a choice there about how you, how you choose to live. And it could be broader. It could be, yeah, writing, writing a book about your dead partner. That's, that's at the other end of the spectrum. And, um, 
but it's all the same thing. It's all a it's all a choice that we're given, and and it's no criticism. Actually, I think it's important to say it's no criticism to say if you're not making fucking lemonade <laughs> out of your shit situation, you are failing. Because I I really don't like that narrative. Actually, um, I find it difficult. I I really saw a lot of that in in the cancer community, and it's it's a little bit awkward to talk about because. While I was in the cancer community, like yourself, we weren't the people with cancer. It, so we're kind of these very close onlookers. And I, I found that that narrative of positivity very, very difficult in the cancer community because as if positivity could have some kind of physical, real almost medical impact on your on your physical outcome the outcome of cancer and i i do god it's so fucking nuanced isn't it because i do understand like having a positive outlook um can absolutely affect your mind your body i i absolutely agree with that at the same time to really dismiss how utterly shit it is and how bad you might feel, I think is really disingenuous. And I think in the cancer community, I think people who are out there with cancer, on treatment, running marathons, I mean, what incredible people. But at the same time, it's kind of, there is this undertone of that's what having cancer needs to look like. And if you are literally just sat in bed crying at your lot that really you know you need to get a bit of a grip oh my god totally you know this is this is something that I only really sat with and came to realize after my partner Ben died so Ben had eight months from his terminal diagnosis to him his death right and that is so short Lottie that is so short it's so, it's so short. It's so quick. And, um, I know your timelines were very different. Your late husband, Greg was ill over quite a long period of time, right? I think five years, five years. Yeah. Mm. So I don't think I really had time to get my head around the severity of his illness. I spent those eight months very much in denial, bypassing, you know, the, the gravity of, and the progression, the extent of his disease that I was somebody that was constantly, you know, be strong, be positive. We're going to get through this. All the things that we're going to do, you know, when you're in remission. That was very clearly a coping mechanism, right? But I've, yeah. I've, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did feel a great deal of guilt and sadness after Ben died because I don't really feel like I gave him the space, right, to just sit in like the shitness of it all and say, do you know what? I actually don't feel like being strong. I don't feel like being positive. I'm really fucking scared. Yeah. I was almost like fingers in the ears. It was, it was too painful to me to even spend a second contemplating the fact that, you know, he might succumb to his disease. Yeah. Were you ever given a timeline by any medical teams? We were never given a timeline. No, we were really kept in the dark and they never actually mentioned the d word you know it was it was terminal um actually his sarcoma the sarcoma doctor did say you know at some point this will 
kill you. It could be 10 years from now. There's n- there's no way of knowing, basically. Oh but it my was only- God. Th- th- they said it could be 10 years. So in your brain, I imagine you you took that number and ran with it thinking, oh, yeah. there'll be loads of medical advancements before then. We can outrun it. Yeah. And, you know, we, we saw stuff online. There are people they're very rare cases, but there are people that do defy these terminal prognoses and go on to live for decades. So I just don't think that either of us were willing to look at mortality, to contemplate the possibility of him no longer being around, which would have obviously meant us not being together, at least in this realm anymore. It was, it was just too painful. Um, so we didn't, but you know, that is something that I regret it's this it's just this bypassing isn't it this toxic positivity which is so prevalent that's so that's so interesting do you know what I feel like I've never heard anybody say that before and I think that's really interesting that I mean I have I've got so many regrets so many regrets um uh, kind of on the flip side, really, because I really did know that Greg was going to die. I absolutely believed it in my call. When they told us, I absolutely believed them. Um, I didn't at first. I, I think I probably felt the same as you. I'd say maybe for three or four months, maybe. I thought that we could outrun it with, I wanted to throw money at it. I wanted to throw, like, I was fundraising for all of these different drugs. And I thought, we and that we could do it but what I found because I was doing so much research about different places that we could go and get treatment the more I read the more I was like oh no like we're fucked and I I wonder if me having children was a really big part of that because I think there is this uh almost like a kind of default mechanism of like survival of like fuck I'm going to be alone with children. I've got to be ready. Like, I don't have the luxury. Oh, I don't mean that to sound flippant at all. No, you uh, don't. Especially between kind of our, our two different situations. I understand, though. You had other people to factor in, right? Yeah, I think I was aware of, of the, the more I read and was thinking, I, I can't, I cannot be unprepared for this. I have to find a way to be ready for what's coming. But I think because I thought that, I then really went into overdrive with things like, I've got to make the best years of Greg's life, at the end of Greg's life, perfection. And I think that is something that I regret. I I then did loads of things where I thought I was kind of almost curating a brilliant end of life for him. And he, I don't think he wanted that <laughs> at all, actually. Like a really good example would be um, in the city where we live that um, they have, they normally have some kind of celebrity to turn on the Christmas lights. And in this particular year, they wanted a nominations for like a pillar of the community to turn the Christmas lights on. I went to town organizing like this big PR campaign to get Greg nominated to be that person. I didn't ask him if he wanted it. I was just like, how fantastic. He couldn't, he can go and turn the city lights on. Imagine our daughters watching that. Oh, you know, he'll, what a beautiful moment. Um, 
I honestly, I went to town getting all these people to nominate him. He won by a landslide. He was absolutely mortified. He was so angry with me. So I think there's like, there's things like that, that I, I really regret now that I didn't give him the space to, because we didn't really, didn't really talk about it, about the reality of what was going on. And because we didn't, I don't know. Maybe that's kind of what you felt with Ben there was that because there was none of the sitting down, really talking about the reality of what was going on and what you both felt about it. Maybe there's, there was that ability to have those kind of crossed wires or not giving each other the real space to be able to talk about how you felt, what you needed. Bless you. I think that's so beautiful that you did that. And, you know, you're just doing the best that you can in fucking impossible circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think, I hope, I hope you feel like this now that you've given yourself a bit more of an easy time about this and had that realization that we are all just trying our best. And I, I'm trying to do that with myself, definitely, where I'm thinking, you were working under the worst circumstances where there's like a clock ticking over your head. Everybody's traumatized. Everybody is not knowing how to deal with any of this. No one knows what to say to each other. And it's interesting, isn't it? When I often see in, say, the cancer and the grief communities, when you talk about how should you talk to somebody who's grieving or how should you talk to someone with cancer or how, what kind of things would you want other people to support you with? And the irony of that is the people on the inside have no fucking clue because they don't know how to support themselves. They don't know how to talk to each other. It's not like they're all the inner sanctum are all kind of totally sussed this thing out. Um, Because it's like living in a hurricane. You literally walk into the hurricane and then you're expected to know stuff or how you feel. And you can't because you can't, you can't think in a hurricane. There's no clarity in a hurricane with no respite where you can just go, oh, I'm just going to take some time off to really think about what I need in this situation. No. And especially when facing a terminal diagnosis, like every day counts, you know, because you you don't know like what's going to happen from one day to the next. You are literally in survival mode. I often described it as like PTSD without the P right? Yeah. Trauma, yeah. like, yeah. like the, the ramifications of the trauma don't just, don't just start when, you know, the hurricane dissipates and like the dust settles. It's, it's constant. Yeah. You're in it. You're in it. And I think you're also trying to, well, I know I was always trying to think about, I don't want to have any regrets. I don't want to have any regrets. So I would live in a way that was so, Oh, I don't even know what the word would be. Probably just over intense where I was always thinking about, I don't want to get to the other side of this and have regrets. And I think probably in doing so, I have loads of regrets. And I I find it difficult when people say, oh, no one should have regrets about things. Um, There's no point in it. 
I don't know about that. I I definitely have regrets about loads of different ways of that I've acted or things that I've said. And and that's okay. That's okay because actually there's growth in there's growth that comes from regrets. There's yeah, there's learning. There's there's moving forward with how you understand yourself and each other and different life circumstances that come along. So I'm I'm a fan of regrets. I wish I didn't fuck up probably quite as often as I do, but I'm yeah, I'm a fan. You're right. I think that's a really gorgeous, positive way to look at regret, right? It, there are learnings in them and um, they are just part and parcel of this like messy human experience. That's the key. I think that is the key word, messy. That's, that is the key word that I use to describe my book is the mess. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no answers in my book whatsoever. Like if, if anyone's reading my book to like look for answers of how to deal with any of this, there's none. There's just probably more questions and also vignettes of me not knowing the answers and trying to kind of live in this very, very messy, messy way. Well, I think that just speaks to the fact that we're all winging it, right? Like none of us know, none of, we're just like fumbling our way through life, as we said, doing our best. And I think what your book is going to do, Stacey, is just bring light to these experiences and inspire some self-inquiry, some deeper reflection. And through that, hopefully we can kind of come to some clarity. But even just speaking to those experiences, I feel is going to be helpful for a lot of people. We've covered quite a lot already. Your late husband, Greg Gilbert, died in September 2021 after being diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer in November 2016. And I think for people who haven't experienced such a profound loss, there is a real absence of understanding as to what the fallout of a loved one's death looks like. And I was hoping to speak to about some of this stuff with you because so much of it is kept behind closed doors. And all that does is perpetuate the lack of understanding and the very real feeling of isolation for a lot of people. So Let's talk about that. Let's get into like the fallout of, of losing a partner specifically, because that's a very unique loss in and of itself. I feel, you know, there's, there aren't many people in our lives that touch pretty much every last facet of our experience as a partner does. Absolutely. I think, I mean, there is no hierarchy of grief absolutely exists that is that is true mm. but at the same time this is such a good example of how conflicting ideas can exist at the same time there is no hierarchy of grief in that people's grief is people's grief it's not a competition but then there then there is a hierarchy of grief at the same time it's kind of deeply acknowledged like if someone came to you and compared your loss of ben to losing their hamster <laughs> Um, or, or, or as someone said to me, someone said to me when Greg was really ill, I was absolutely losing my mind about something and I was crying and 
I think it was kind of, it was like in the middle, this isn't when he died. This is kind of, there were some bad scan results, something like that. And someone said to me, he was witnessing me crying and being really upset. Oh, I know how you feel actually, because my grandson um, has got tonsillitis and he's really, really struggling with it. <gasps> and I was like, I, I don't know where to go with that. I just don't know where to go. Um, yeah. So, so there is, there is also a hierarchy of grief at the same time. Um, but I think the very specific thing about losing your partner is that, like you said, there is no one who touches every single touch point in your life like a partner does. And in terms of things changing after their death, it is extreme. It's there's there's nowhere left to turn for normality or some form of continuity it is literally everything and like i said that's not to say it's it's the worst i'm not trying to, i'm absolutely not trying to say that um but it it's it's huge well it's everything it's literally everything it's everything it's everything from how you go to sleep in your bed at night, how you wake up in the morning making, you know, one cup of coffee instead of two, standing at the bathroom sink, brushing your teeth, doing your skincare routine and not having that person stood next to you. It's, it's everything. It's those little minute day-to-day details. And then it's all the bigger stuff as well. You know, the loss of financial security. Oh, that is huge. That's huge. And I think it's one of those things that people don't think about that when they are looking on to people and their loss in that, in that sense, they don't think about the more um, transient ideas that, that are play a day-to-day role in every relationship. And it will be things like, um, not being able to just, if you've got small kids, not being able to just pop out and go and buy some groceries up at the shop without taking all of your fucking children <laughs> with you. Um, as much as, oh, I'm going to have to contribute alone to my children's lives financially forever. There is nobody else, no matter what happens to me in the future, to do with. I don't know, other partners, whatever, how that, however that turns out in the future, it, that's on me. Um, you know, I think about my, my parents, both of my parents are still alive. They're both, they're together. And I think about the support and help that I get from them at, at the age of 43. And it's, it's enormous and they will never have that. And I, so I will be their only parent for their whole lives. I'm petrified of something happening to me and what, and what does that mean for my children? And that could, that's, that's things like financially, what would happen to them? Where would they, who would they live with? How would that affect them for the rest of their lives? Like, things like that are just play, are in my psyche all of the time. And that's the kind of things that people people don't necessarily think about when they think, oh, your husband's died. 
I think it shatters the this illusion that I certainly spent a lot of my life kind of living behind that, you know, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to work out in the end. And I took that, as I touched on earlier, all through, all throughout Ben's illness, right up until his death, I, you know, convinced myself that we were going to be one of those success stories. And then when it didn't turn out that way, and he died anyway, after all the shit that we threw at his disease, it's left me with this horrible feeling, this sense that, oh shit, you know, bad things happen all the time. And and it's difficult living with that knowing, actually. Uh, I wonder if you struggle with that. Oh my God. It, it is probably my most, my prevalent feeling as I go about my life day to day, that, that, that knowledge that so little is in our control and and that bad things do happen all of the time to good people how you live bears no resemblance to what will then happen to you and and also and this is the thing that i find so difficult is that after two and a, it's two and a half years now since greg died and i and i do feel those sharp edges of grief softening over time and morphing into something else as well. But at the same time, that knowledge of, well, this is going to happen again because we're all human and we're all going to die. And the people that we love, the more people you bring into your life that you are connected to and that you love, the more times you're going to go through this. It's it's really hard to reconcile with the knowing that that could happen again. Oh, it's, do you know what? I don't know how to reconcile it. Like I said, I'm not coming with any answers to anything. <laughs> I'm, uh, but I, I think I probably feel maybe how everyone else feels of when you've, when you've gone through that, when you've, when you've done that, it's, you, you don't know how to tolerate that level of pain again. And I do. I mean, I look at other people who are in situations who have had, say, multiple losses and think, how the fuck did you do that? How the fuck do you get up in the morning? I don't know how you do it. Um, and I suppose, I don't know, there's the hierarchy again of that's how people have, you know, I know you've had people say that to you of like, how, how do you do this? And you do. And I, I don't know, maybe. Maybe everyone just does. Well, I think, like you said earlier, there is an element of choice at play, right? You can go one way or another. You can either allow this to dictate the rest of your life. You can become a victim to your circumstances, or you can say, fuck, you know, this happened. And actually, death has been probably my greatest teacher in that sense, and that it really has galvanized me to like want to grab whatever is left of my life by the proverbial bollocks and just run with it. You know, people are like, how do you, how do you do it? How do you, how do you remain so positive? And it's like, because of that. I mean, yeah, that is, that's the flip side of it, isn't it? Of that you are, you're kind of stuck with this existential terror of, of like the really understanding the mechanics of life. 
And I suppose the flip side to that is that realization of this really is going to be us one day and it's going to be the people that we love. So we need to actually really truly make the most of that. And it's, it's something that's, that's so flippantly said, isn't it? In, in general parlance of people's in society of like making, like living, living every day, like it's your last. And I, and I think that people don't really know what that feels like until they've seen someone's last day. They don't know what that actually means that you actually are not going to be here. The people that you love will one day not be here for you to do anything with. And, and that knowledge, I think when you go through that, I mean, at least I did, I, it was this huge realization for me, like this big awakening. I think this happens to a lot of people in lots of different facets. They have an awakening where they realize what is important to them and what that looks like. And I mean, that definitely happened to me that, and that happened really on that happened at Greg's diagnosis, I would say not even his death, but five years earlier where I, it was this huge wake up call to me of how I was living. And maybe on paper, you would look at my life and go, oh, wow, that's really successful. And, you know, you're ticking all those life boxes. But I, I wondered in that moment then of like, oh, wow, do, how truthful am I being with myself about what I want? Or am I just ticking those boxes, moving up that ladder and not really giving in to kind of the 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 voice in me that was very authentic and it it gave me that that real shake to really think about that what did that look like for you it very much relates to work because when greg was diagnosed i was a senior academic in a university i was a course leader uh i was in charge of other members of staff i had hundreds of students to look after I worked full time. I had two very, very small children. Well, babies, actually. I was on maternity leave when Greg was diagnosed. So they were proper babies. And it was one of those things where I was really starting to fall apart of trying to live up to that ridiculous myth of women doing it all where try, like my body is trying to grow and birth babies all within a two-year period, um, trying to be a, an established academic, teach you know good col- quality conduct and content to these students who are paying to be there on a degree, um, trying to be a good partner to Greg, trying to be a good friend, a good daughter, sister, all the things. I just, it was so outrageous how I was living, but you would look at that and go, Oh, look at Stace. Like she's, she's doing well. And actually I was falling apart. And I think that whole thing with Greg's diagnosis blew that entire thing apart. So I was due to go back to work And I had to contact work to say, I can't come back after maternity leave. I thought that Greg was going to die really, really quickly because of how ill he was at the time when he was diagnosed. But as time went on and I was kind of just signed off sick with kind of personal stress, I suppose it would have been. And 
then after a year, I thought to myself, fuck, like, I can't, I can't go back. You know, Greg was involved in treatment and things were ticking on and but I thought, I can't go back. What, what on earth would that look like? Having, again, to- two toddlers, a really, really fucking sick husband who's at the hospital all the time, who I want to be with. And how many, I didn't know how many months I had left with him. So I left and it was, it was a big deal. It was very much 100% my decision, one that I have stood by. There's not been a moment where I've regretted it. But what was interesting is that I really felt that personal loss of identity. It was something I'd worked so hard to get all the credentials and the qualifications. And I had the title and I had this was big, big responsibility. And even though I knew that really, you know, it kind of counts for, for very little in in, the, in those kinds of senses. I think teaching is a very, very honourable profession. I have nothing but respect for all teachers at all levels. But I was like, I've just got to be at home with Greg. All I want to do is be with him and my family, and that's it. Um, so that was a massive shake-up for me in terms of like how how I changed my life. I mean, also, I started doing... I actually started listening to myself about what did I want to do in this little one precious life that we have. And there were, there were people that I wanted to see more of. There are people that I very much wanted to see less of. And I made those adjustments in my life. I, I contact, I always wanted to be a writer when I was younger, but I kind of had that knocked out of me a little bit at school with a very weird relationship with my English teacher. And, and that kind of sent me onto a different trajectory towards fashion in the end, which is what I had my career in. And, but it never left me that wanting to be a writer. And so I just, it gave me that real fuck it attitude of, well, nothing matters anyway. So I may as well try. So I, I remember I contacted the local newspaper and just said, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, really. I just said, I want to write an, a, a weekly column. I want it to be about my life. What do you think? It's going to be called this. What do you think? I mean, quite an outrageous statement. Oh, I've got no work to back it up. I've got, I've got like no, I've got no history in this as, at all. And they said yes. And it was like the biggest. Again, like this wake up call of like, oh my God, we believe so many of these stories about ourselves or how the world works that we we forget things. And it was this realization of, oh, what about if you just asked for what you wanted? That's not to say that you're always going to get it. There's loads of stuff that I've wanted to do in the past, say, five, six, seven years that I've asked and haven't got. But I've tried I've asked the question and actually I'd say eight times out of 10 people go, Oh yeah, cool. Great. Um, yeah. And that was, a that was this big shake up for me of thinking, what about if I actually listened to what I really, really want to do, how I want to spend my days, who I want to spend my days with, what kind of experiences do I want to have before I don't know before before the next tsunami. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because that's coming. 
that's coming on the horizon. Who knows when? But um, yeah, and that's a that's a strange. It's a strange feeling to have because I don't really know how to come to terms with it. That feeling of like being woken up to how the world works and what's important and really starting to listen to yourself, your own intuition and live by that intuition is so freeing and incredible actually, but it is at the expense of the demise of the person that I loved most in the world. And that is a very, very hard pill to swallow. I mean, no one's asking me (laughs) realistically of like, oh, if you had to choose, which would you choose? Or would you like, I mean, Greg's not coming back. I'm just having to deal with what I've got. And, and I suppose what, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose that is a kind of testament to Greg as well of like, I can't let your death be in vain. So the way that I will deal with that is is try to live the biggest, richest, emotionally beautiful life that I can. And I will encourage that in your daughters as well. I will I will not feel sorry for us. Um occasionally, occasionally I ha- I have moments where I feel like, oh my God, like especially when it comes to my daughters. I I sometimes look at them and I see their grief and their pain and how that manifests. And I do have that feeling of wishing something else for them. Um, But ultimately, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is what we've got and I can't feel sorry for us. We are just going to make the best of it. That's it. And that's all you really can do. And I think that is the most beautiful honoring of Greg that you could possibly have, right? I think so. And and also there was a big realization of I know that like when Greg died, that kind of aftermath when that time period when you're getting all of the messages, everyone in the whole fucking world's messaging you. And one of the narratives was very much of and, and I totally understand where it was coming from in people. And I, this isn't a criticism at all, but when people said, you've got to live for Greg, we're living, you know, let's live for Greg. Greg would want this, Greg would want that. And I've, I've often thought to myself, yeah, absolutely. But I'm also living for me <laughs> because actually I, I don't want to die with Greg. I don't want my children who are tiny kids. I don't want them to die. I don't want a part of them to die with Greg. Yes, I'm going to absolutely live in a way. I mean, I'm just, my birthday is coming up in a couple of weeks and I'm going to be the same age that Greg was when he died. He was three years older than me. So I'm going to get to be that age. And and I know from kind of being this age now, it is no age to die. It is, I know people also die much, much younger. And I, you know, I, again, I can't come to terms with that either, but I know from kind of sitting here nearly 44, like it's no age to die. And I I want to feel all those other ages and I want to enjoy what those other ages bring because Greg couldn't, 
but I want to do that as well. I, I want that for me and my daughters. For yourself as much as for him. Yeah, I agree. I was very much governed by this desire to live for Ben in the initial aftermath of his death. And, you know, I was doing things that I thought he, he would want me to do. And I can't remember when that narrative shifted for me, but I then started realizing actually it's also about my life, you know, and I do feel when you're giving care to somebody that's terminally ill it's it's a really awful thing to say but you know you do lose you miss out on chunks of your own life right to take care of that person and yeah I I wanted to reclaim that you know I wanted to claw some of that back that touches Stacey on a question that you asked your community on Instagram you asked them has grief made you bolder or more afraid? I think it depends on the day. I think that, that I, I think that both of those things exist in me or maybe other people who have had losses, but the percentages change depending on the day. Um, I, goodness, I, I had, I had a day a couple of days ago where everything felt so overwhelming and I think I'd read I'd read some things online. I'd read a, an article in the morning over my breakfast about cancer. It was a headline about cancer numbers will go up by 75% by 2050. And honestly, I I literally felt like I'd been hit by a truck and I went food shopping after I dropped my kids off at, at school. I went food shopping and I had to go and have a moment in in the corner and just cry in like the men's the menswear section of Sainsbury's I had to just go and take a moment of like having some tears and then like thinking right you've got to get yourself together to go and do the food shop and then other times uh you know in the same week I'm sending out emails to like these big international podcasters going hi you don't know me I'd like to come on your podcast like taking all the risks and want like thinking about talking to my girls about where should we go on holiday? What festival should we go to? Like really wanting to kind of live that big, bold life. And they do, they do exist in total duality, but I, it depends on what, what percentage you're on that day. What do, what do you think about that? It's both sometimes at the same time. Ben's death and then my dad's death 10 months later, I think, has left me with this deep-seated hypervigilance. You know, I'm constantly overthinking stuff, like assessing risk, um, contemplating worst-case scenarios, very much on sort of high alert, waiting for the next bad thing to happen. But at the same time, I do feel like so much more fearless than I ever was before. Well, you kind of realise that so, so little actually matters. And the, and the stuff that's left that does matter, matters the mo- like in an incredible amount. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's about judging what those things are. And I, I definitely think that uh, early grief in particular made me feel bulletproof. And I felt like I had a very, very clear idea about what those things were and weren't. 
And I definitely feel a bit further on down the line that those have blurred a bit, actually. I think that I find myself without so much clarity that I did, getting bogged down in nonsense that doesn't matter. And it really, um, really taking over my thoughts or my emotions. And I, and I can't really tap in to that really pure emotion anymore that I had that I think keeps you safe in the early part of grief. Cause I, well, I don't know if you didn't have it, I think you'd be destroyed, but I suppose the softening of all the edges means all, all of it. It's not just that really unadulterated pain that, that starts to blur. It's also that, that clarity that you experience at that time as well. I agree. I agree. I think the reality is the world has continued to spin. Time is, is pulling us forwards, whether we like it or not. And yeah, there is this, this sort of softening. Sometimes I even, I, I forget just how fucking bad that was. And it's only, it's only really going through this book writing process last year. And maybe I'm, I'm curious to know whether it was the same for you that I was like really up up against it. I was like brushing up against those feelings, those experiences again. I think it is a protection me- mechanism, you know, to sort of distance yourself. I totally agree. And I, I had exactly the same thing um, writing my book where I delved in deep into these these really key moments. And very often I would literally have to just close my laptop and sob because I was there. I was so viscerally there. And for me, it was very much about like those, those key moments of things like being in waiting rooms, seeing doctors, that, that waiting for phone calls, like all of that stuff for me is is nightmarish. And I think when I tapped back into those spaces, it was overwhelming, so overwhelming. And yeah, even I think back to myself, think, how the fuck did you get through that? How did you, how did you deal with that? Yeah. I mean, there's actually a lot of time when I didn't deal with it. Like people often say, as I'm sure they have to you or anybody who kind of has dealt with any kind of big trauma. Oh, you know, you're so strong. You're so strong. And um, in in the book, actually, I wrote about a particular moment of like how, well, the first couple of months of Greg's diagnosis, you would never, ever have classed me as strong at all. I was a wreck, an absolute wreck. And there was one point where we had gone in to hear the results of some, I think it was like the genetic testing to do with what what the particular genetic sequence of Greg's cancer. And he was obviously, this is, this was kind of the nature of everything we dealt with every kind of turn, whatever the choice was, he was always the worst. He was always the, like the most rare version, the one where there were no drugs that worked. The what it was like, oh, right. Of course, of fucking course. Okay. Literally every turning was bad news. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'd literally just heard this news of like, oh yeah, like the the version that Greg is, he's in the rare category. And that means that the drug that's available on the NHS is not going to work for him. And I literally ran out of the room 
<laughs> think about this now, about how people view me. And I, I ran through the waiting room and I tripped over. I actually tripped over in the in the middle of the waiting room with all these fucking people, like these people with no hair, like, you know, a third of their body weight gone through chemo. And I lay on the floor and I remember, I can remember so clearly my cheek lying on that kind of horrible floor, cold floor, looking at everybody, looking down at me. And I remember thinking, that's it. I give up. I'm done. I, I give up. That's it. I can't. And I was crying on the floor and this lovely nurse came up like, it's like like she'd done it a million times before, which she probably has. She kind of put her arms underneath um, my armpits and dragged me into this um, uh, this like empty consulting room. Mm. And she sat me down and she gave me the biggest hug and held my face and just said, "You are going to do this. You don't." Because I just kept saying, "I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't do it." And she was like you are going to do this. You don't know how you're going to do it, but you will. And it is going to be so shit, but you are going to do it. And, um, yeah, it was just this, uh, I mean, it was no kind of, I didn't leave feeling all like, ha enlightened or anything like that, but it was, uh, I don't know. Strength is a, it's a weird one, isn't it? And, you know, the idea of being resilient, resilience, another word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, and, not really understanding that you kind of need to resilience is a hard one trait you only you only gain it through being broken in the first place and having to stand back up and there's war wounds with that you don't just become this kind of superhuman there's real war wounds that that come with having some some element of strength or resilience mm Gosh, that sounds like a really touching moment of humanity. There seems to be a real absence of like emotional, mental support when navigating the shitstorm that is a terminal diagnosis. But did it? But did it exist before? Like, if yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to turn to is is always, especially when it comes to say the NHS in the UK, is that that feeling of, well, there's just not the resources. There's no, there are no resources left. I remember when, um, when Greg was actually told in the middle of a ward, in the middle of a day during um, visitor hours that his cancer was stage four and that there was nothing they could do for him. And we had to receive that, that information from a consultant or from a surgeon who was saying, oh, no, there will be no surgery. It's stage four. There's no point. Um, in, um, and I remember saying to the nurse that was with us saying, can we go somewhere? Like, can we, cause it was like absolutely jam packed. People's TVs were on. I was like, can we not go somewhere? And they were, I said, do you not have family rooms anymore? They're like, oh no, they're all offices now. You can go in the nurse's office. And I was like, what? How can I just walk into someone's office to talk about the fact that, my husband's just been told he's going to die. I, I don't. I don't understand that. And so I think you can. Yeah, it's really obvious that we don't have the the resources, the money, the time, the kind of human resources as well. But I wonder. Like, I don't know. This is not a new disease. I wonder what happened 
I don't know when when the health system was working, or I wonder what happens maybe in the private sector in that way of if you give someone that kind of information, do you just send them away with a leaflet? I don't think we even got that. No, I don't think we got that. Yeah, the only time we got a leaflet, which I actually just didn't, I like refused to take it because I was like, he's not going to die, was when she was when his um doctor his oncologist like slid some sort of end of life care hospice leaflet towards us and I was like nah I'm not looking at that but yeah it's really interesting I think that just speaks to our ineptitude when it comes to talking about anything difficult right illness death grief you know this all too well Stacey the the misconceptions the judgments surrounding grief you know how we grieve yeah, the, that idea of that grief is just, say, sadness. I think that's a really common misconception, but that it's actually a host. Grief is almost like this kind of abstract. It's not, it, I saw someone, someone wrote about it this morning. I saw online somewhere that was saying grief is not an emotion. It is a, it is a space in your mind to process loss. So it's a bit it's a bit of an abstract concept like love. Love is not necessarily the emotion. Love creates emotions under in your body, in your mind without It's like a phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um so actually sadness is is one of them. Is one of the feelings and the emotions. And also the thing is with grief is none of them are they're very often like really uncomfortable and don't fit into the the circumstance, don't fit into what other people think is appropriate. Other people have got loads of you. I suppose, again, like love, I suppose, you know, think about people in relationships. I don't know, maybe if like parents say to you, oh, is he the right person for you if you were younger or or your girlfriend's kind of giving advice about your relationship with someone. I don't know. Is it the same kind of thing where that kind of judgment of how you act in grief or in love? I think a lot of people have a lot of views on it. And and they like to tell people. They like to tell they like to tell you if I don't know. I imagine I imagine I know probably 90 I probably know 2% of what anyone has ever thought about how I've grieved. But do you know what? It's actually none of my business. It's none of, it's, it's nothing I need to know about. It's got nothing to do with me. Much like any view that I've got of how anybody else has grieved, which to be honest, I don't, having gone through it myself, I don't really have any opinions. Well, no, because you, you kind of can't. I don't, because I'm like, do you know what? Get you get yeah. Get on with it. You 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 are getting on with it, and and that's that. Well, that's it. And very often people are just doing what it is they feel they need to do in order to survive. Yeah, of course. And 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 very often, oh, I don't know. People people don't always make the best decisions always when they are kind of working through big, big things and big life transitions. And other times they really are. Other times they've got real clarity and understanding about what they're doing and it just happens to not fit into someone else's. It's not even just about people's ideas about what it looks like. It's also about how it affects them and how 
how you show up makes them feel about their place within the situation. And again, that's got nothing to do with me or you or anyone else, because that's very much like I might have a reaction to someone else. Um, and that's my stuff. I don't know if you can relate to this. I met Ben when I was 24. He died shortly after my 30th birthday. So we were together for about six and a half years. And I think meeting him in that phase of my life when, you know, I mean, I'm I'm still figuring out who I am. I don't think I really had a sense of who I was in my early 20s. To have spent those formative years with him meant that a lot of my identity and my perception of my own worth was built around him and our relationship. And then losing him meant that I had to find it some, somewhere else. So I remember having this pep talk with myself one day. I've really got to love myself now in the way that Ben loved me. I have to see myself the way that he saw me. And it's been quite a beautiful journey, actually, kind of understanding that actually I do have value. I am worthy of love. Can you relate to any of that at all? Absolutely. I think that's huge. I think that is really huge. I I have a really similar thing in that when I think about the book and and putting it out into the world and really wanting to kind of take ownership of it and kind of shout from the rooftops about being proud of the work that I've done, that is very much based on Greg's voice in my head because he was such a big cheerleader of mine and I think I was racked for pretty much nearly all of the years that we were together. So we were together for 15 years. And I I think I was always that person that was like, oh, I can't, oh, I want to do this, but I can't, I can't, I can't do that because I'm not a writer. I'm not... I'm not an artist. I'm not all these things. And he was like, who fucking says? Like you, you're telling yourself you're not. Who says that you're not those things? And he was always pushing me to move past that imposter syndrome mentality and to really grab things in a big way and run with them. And I think when I think about the book as something that I always wanted to do, but I never, do you know what? I never admitted it to anybody because it felt like really vulnerable to put something out into the world and think if you're how embarrassing that might be if i'm if i don't achieve it that i would look less than and 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 that really played with my mind and i think it was during those years of his illness and and we spent so much time together. And that is something I'm so thankful for that me taking voluntary redundancy for my job and getting some money for that meant that we could be together. And also fucking COVID in the middle of it as well. A weird, weird benefit of that time is that we got to spend a huge amount of together as a family. Mm -hmm. So we spent so much time together talking about creativity. So he was, um, he was an artist. He was a published poet. He was the front man of the band Delays for years, singer-songwriter. So he kind of ticked all those creative boxes. So we we talked about 
art, literature, music, writing, all all the time, literally all the time. And we spent so much time, our thing was going to coffee shops, going to restaurants, hotels, just to sit and write and just to talk about stuff together. We talked a lot about big ideas and that, that is what I miss the most. Oh, when I think about Greg, I just miss those like real great conversations, like you were saying about making your morning coffee without Ben next to you. Mm. I miss having the radio on and there being like listening to someone talking about politics and us and it's sparking like an hour's big, big debate about politics. We loved doing that. And I miss that. And um, anyway, but his, his voice in in like talking about creativity and me. And I, I hear his voice when I think about playing small in this creative endeavor that he never got to see. All I think is, listen, I can hear his voice and I don't need, yeah, I don't need him to be here to hear it. I've had it ingrained in me over the years and years and years and years of us talking constantly about the idea of being a creative, of artistic endeavor I can hear him that for me is like a real guiding light when I think about creativity I think about him because he encapsulated all of that and I think also for him when he his style of art changed entirely when he was diagnosed and and I often refer to that mentally of he got he was doing something that he he felt he was kind of stuck in a little box with a particular style. And when he was diagnosed, it just broke that box open and he really started to produce the work he always wanted to without really giving a fuck. And and there's a sincerity and a realness in that that people will connect with. And I, I suppose that's what I really hope with the book, that it comes from such a, a real place of flow. There is so much, you know, in many ways, it's a very unconsidered book. I didn't really take much time to construct the sentences. And do you know what I mean? Like the the kind of the craft of storytelling is very much like a, a, a word vomit of like feelings and emotions. And I, and I hope from, from that point of view that it, it kind of resonates with people in terms of being very authentic in that sense. I think that's one of your strong points and why tens of thousands of people are like drawn to you and your work and listen to what you have to say on, on social media. It's certainly one of the reasons why I actively seek out your face on, <laughs> on my feed because you, you speak with such rawness and authenticity and you're not afraid to you know bring light to some of the darker more difficult aspects of the human experience let's talk a little bit more about your book tell us what it's called and why it's called what it's called and what is the premise of it okay um so the book's called now is not the time for flowers and I think there's there's two ways of taking it really. I it's a it's actually a line from the book. And in the book, it is used in the context of that there are 
fallow periods of people's lives where it is it is the time for kind of sowing the seeds of sitting in the dirt because that's not the time when you're kind of sat with beautiful the bloom of beautiful flowers around you you kind of need to do that deep dark work beforehand when there's nothing to show for it and i suppose i i wrote the book in the time when i had nothing yeah i did have nothing to show for it i was literally in the trenches doing all of the work doing that work and i that line is actually taken from a chapter of the book called love is the color of dirt and it was about the book the the chapter is all about when real what real love looks like and that we are so focused about real true love coming in a very very certain format and looking in a very certain way and it's of, often very very linked to the idea of romance when actually real love, and you will know this as someone who cared for someone you love, is that real love is when you are in the trenches. That is when you really know how much you love someone. It's not these big moments that really signify love. It is those it's actually the bleak moments. Uh, the other meaning of it, which I didn't think about when I wrote it, but it works really well in terms of the book, is that what we all need in, in difficult times is not flowers. Actually, what we need is to talk about stuff. And I think that we're so bad at talking about things that we have all these ways of dealing with things that are just not of any use. And one of those things is <laughs> like a good example is, is giving flowers in hard times of like, do you know what I'd prefer? I'd prefer you just phoned me or, and just said, this is shit. It's kind of a nod to the idea that what we really need to do is be talking about all this stuff rather than uh, using all these different vehicles to basically hide our emotions and not be able to connect with each other in these big times when really that's all people want. That is all people want. And also, I tell you what, no one wants to look after fucking flowers. When someone's died, no. Exactly. And what I've often heard grievers say is that then to see the fucking flowers die four or five days later, it's just... yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I couldn't save you either. Yeah. I couldn't save the flowers either. I've got to put I've got to put them in, to rest in a bin. Yeah. Absolutely. Yet another thing to care for that I can't save. Exactly. I think the title is brilliant and I'm it's going to be an amazing read. I mean, you've shared like a, a few tiny snippets on Instagram. Yeah. What I will say is that it's it's not a grief memoir, for example. It's not that. It is It is very much told through um, the focused lens of different things that happened to me and Greg, but not just in that time. I think it's very much about the realization that there have been many times in my life where I felt so underprepared for the situations that I found myself in, very much due to the fact that people don't talk about things, whether that's things we're taught at school or just generally how we communicate with each other about life and things that we decide that we don't want to talk about. And then when we get to those things, it's an absolute mindfuck. 
such a mindfuck. And um, my book looks at loads of different points of, of my life. I talk a lot about love, like what does love look like in the trenches? And it's not what happens if you don't get this happy ending? What happens if your relationship is actually kind of falling apart behind the scenes when everyone thinks that, oh, well, they're kind of like together in this unit and it's such a kind of tragic story, but look at them and actually behind the scenes, you're kind of at each other's throats. There's lots of things about uh, desire as well, and what what that looks like for women. I definitely wanted to talk a lot about death, and I think this was one of my real problems that that really galvanised me into writing was that I was so horrified at how underprepared I was for the lead up to Greg's death. And I was thinking about when I had children. I was thinking hang on a minute. Uh, So there's every podcast under the sun. There's every book in the world. There's NCT class. There's all these classes that you go to. There's, you get a midwife, you get someone who literally gives you like a pack and says, this is what's going to happen to you. Here's step by step by step by week, by week, by week, by week. There's apps that tell you exactly what's going on in your baby week by week. And and I'm like, especially when it was like, okay, Greg's got weeks to live. All anyone could tell me anywhere, whether that was doctors that were coming in or palliative nurses or volunteers or anybody, all anyone could say, and I get it, is every death is different. Every death is different. We know every birth is different, but you've got a really good fucking idea of what it looks like. And there was lots of things happening physically with him. I was absolutely losing my mind about like going, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? What's happening? And then being told, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's this. That's this. And not having any knowledge of it and thinking, why don't I know this? Why do we as a society not know this? I really wanted to talk about what that actually looked like and felt like. I hope that I can kind of, yeah, show you, show people the, the kind of the inner turmoil part, but then also, um, I do towards the end of the book, do talk about identity, rebuilding your life and personal growth. We talked a bit about toxic positivity before. I, I can't ignore that, that kind of that positive, I suppose positive is a strange word, but the the amount of personal growth that I've gone through that has taken, I don't know, that's really helped shape my identity in a way that I can only see as um, positive. Yeah. But it's not one thing or another, is it? It's not this or that. You can, you can live alongside your grief and hold space for all that it encompasses while still feeling unbridled joy it's that duality that we spoke of earlier you know it's the human experience is fucking messy it's not black and white it's very nuanced very colorful what I'm getting from the conversations we've had about your book is that it is it's a celebration of all of it you know the hodgepodge the beauty and the darkness Stace where can my listeners connect with you 
Um, they can find me on Instagram. Um, I'm only on one platform because my, I don't have the bandwidth to do anything else. Uh, I'm at Instagram at Stacy with an E underscore heel. Um, and my book is available for pre-order to be released 28th of March. It's called Now, It's Not the Time for Flowers. <laughs> <laughs>